We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place exclusive interviews with players coaches and team executives streaming live and always available on demand stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the odyssey app a year after the death of george floyd americans paused this week in cities across the country to reflect and remember one year since george floyd's death it has been a long year but a year later after so many protests and so many pointed conversations at dinner tables and in boardrooms across the country we ask so what has changed a young black man driving a nice car you get harassed by the police that's my car right there that black car right there if i drive that car at 11 o'clock at the night and i'm going home they have press and pull me over for nothing that's what happens in harlem and in Minneapolis, where this all started a year ago, are things better? It brought it to light that it happens, but it hasn't necessarily stopped it. And the problems of injustice for black and brown people remain. This week on 880 In-Depth, from New York to Minnesota, we look at what has changed in terms of policing in America after the killing of George Floyd and what still needs to change. The conviction of Derek Chauvin that was the best possible outcome for good policing because now they can say we can distance ourselves from these bad cops and if we can hold bad cops accountable then the good cops will be free to do their job i'm tim shells from wcbs news radio 880 in spots across the nation this week they knelt said prayers reflected and remembered the killing of George Floyd by a police officer, an act caught on cell phone video that shocked the nation and spurred difficult conversations about race in America. But Minneapolis resident April Foster says she still worries for her 15-year-old son. So you saw George Floyd die and you were thinking about your son. That could have been my son. Has that fear gone away? To some degree, yes. Today is April Foster's birthday. But she says she will spend part of the day reflecting on George Floyd. He literally has changed the world. But not everyone is so convinced that things have changed. Our Peter Haskell was in Harlem this week talking to people of color about the Floyd anniversary. He met Anthony Jackson, who told us he doesn't think very much has changed at all here in New York. What's changed? Anything? Nothing. Police still harassing people. Same old thing, man. What would you like to see different? I would like to see them stop harassing black people for no reason. Treat us with respect. Things would be better. If you don't, it's going to get worse. Give me an example of what you've dealt with. A young black man driving a nice car. You get harassed by the police. That's my car right there, that black car right there. If I drive that car at 11 o'clock at the night, 
And I'm going home, and her practice pulled me over for nothing. You run the plate, you see everything is good. Why harass? Get out the car, let's check, see if we got drugs. Because you're in a nice car. That's what happens in Harlem. Would you prefer to see more cops or fewer? I would prefer to see less cops. The more cops you're going to see, is going to be problems. The less cops, there shouldn't be no problems. When you got all these cops not doing their job, then that's when the problem comes in. So the more cops you have, is the more problems. The less cops, the less problems. Tell me about Black Lives Matter. What, what does that movement mean? I mean, they say, it don't, to me, it don't really mean nothing, because our life don't matter. Every time you turn around, it's a black person getting shot, getting stabbed, getting killed. So Black Lives Matter what? It don't mean nothing. It might mean something to me, but it don't mean nothing to the next person, especially to one of the cops. If Black Lives Matter, look what's happening. Right after the guy got killed, somebody else got killed by a cop. If I get in my car and pull over right now, that's because I'm scared if I see the police. I don't want to roll my window and get my ID. They might shoot me. You know? Do you think people have a better understanding of Black Lives Matter since George Floyd? No. No, not at all. Because it's the same thing that's happening. The same thing is happening over and over and over. It's it got to start somewhere. It's got to start with the police treating us right. Then it's got to start with my people treating the police right. If one person don't step up, it's going to be the same way all the time. You see it. You turn the, Every time you turn the news on, somebody's getting stabbed in a train station. Somebody's getting shot. People's getting tired. And people's getting tired. People's getting harassed. And people need money. People need help. You're not helping. By getting more police, that's not going to help. It's going to make things worse. Sounds depressing. You hear it in my voice, right? Very depressing. Anthony Jackson with our Peter Haskell this week. And in Minneapolis, we went back to talk to local reporter Susie Jones from our sister station WCCO Radio. Our Wayne Cabot asked her... So what has changed? Well, I think awareness probably is the first, and I suppose that's important for change. Um, my 90-year-old mother asked me what it meant to be woke, and, you know, and to be aware, more acutely aware of how black people have had to live for their whole lives with getting pulled over by police more than whites, and also having the fear that any day if they got pulled over for anything, the fear is always there that they could be killed. And that's a reality for them. And I don't think a lot of whites in Minneapolis and maybe the country heard much about that prior to George Floyd's death. Yeah, and to use your mother's questioning word, woke, uh, certainly that had an effect not just on this country, but the world. What is it like in Minneapolis to have the entire focus of the globe on this city for the last year? I think it's been a bit exhausting to have, you know, the city be under a microscope, for lack of a better word. Um, But it really, I mean, I want to say again, it hasn't been the entirety of the year. There have been moments, there have been different incidents that has come up, but it was, you know, very heavy the first month, you know, all of June last year was completely, uh, felt a sense of being in a military zone. It was so much law enforcement. And then that ramped up again during the trial of Eric Chauvin, Derek Chauvin, that also was 
a very militarized feeling with lots of blockades and barbed wire. Um, but I said, I would say it's exhausting to kind of always be on edge a little bit under scrutiny. What do you think it's like to be a cop in Minneapolis? Uh, can you give me a sense of police relations now a year later? I think that to be a police officer in the city of Minneapolis has got to be the hardest job ever. I think there is more distrust than that's ever been that their violence is up in our city. And I know that's somewhat true across the country in terms of the pandemic having something to do with sort of shutting everything down for as long as it had and then opening the gates up and people sort of bursting forth with energy, whether that's good or bad. And in the case of Minneapolis, we've had a sharp increase in violent crime, black on black crime where there aren't generally marches, you know, there are marches when a police officer kills a black man, but there are not the same marches as when a young black person kills another black person. And in the last month in Minneapolis, three young children were hit by gunfire. One of them died and two are still in critical condition. And so while you like to think that the death of George Floyd could bring about good and change. And I think it has. There's still a lot to be reckoned with here. A year ago, when this story first broke, did you have any sense of the impact it would have? No, I was working, ironically, uh, interestingly, I should say, I worked on Tuesday morning. So this happened on Memorial Day, which is a Monday, May 25th last year. And Tuesday, I worked the morning show. And I came to work at 3.30 in the morning, and the story was on the news that a man in his, a black man in his 40s had died of, during police custody. And that's all it said, while we're uh, struggling with police. And so on any given day, that might not be a story for a news person, a news organ room, right? But by about 5 o'clock in the morning or 4.30, the video surface that Darnella Frazier took with the I Can't Breathe video, and in the span of two hours, the mayor was in front of kind of a small group of us media at, I think it was like 6.30 in the morning, calling it murder. And so that was it. And I don't know. I think it kind of crept up. You know, I was there that day, that morning came back to work Wednesday and there had been marches and, and then some violence outside the third precinct. And I went over on Wednesday and it, it started to look like a war zone, you know, with stuff was broken, but by Wednesday afternoon, really the wheels had come off and that the city police department had completely lost control of any semblance of control over the city. Susie, I'll wrap it up by asking you, you mentioned that the mayor that morning called it murder, and then the jury unanimously said the same thing, that it was murder. Did the verdict, having come within a year so rapidly, do you think that helped heal the city somewhat? I think so. I think that obviously convictions of police officers are pretty rare, and so it was a victory. It was a moment of healing. But again, I'll I'll end with and how many more police shootings of black people have there been since George Floyd's death. So it didn't stop it. It brought it 
to light that it happens, but it hasn't necessarily stopped it. And the problems of injustice for black and brown people remain. You know, it didn't solve any grand problem. So I don't want to be uh, pessimistic because I think everyone's still fighting for change. But that's my uh, sense of it. We appreciate that take. Susie Jones from Minneapolis WCCO Radio. Susie, thanks. While many people are saying that little has changed in America since George Floyd's death, to be fair, the killing last year reignited a push for racial justice in America the likes of which we hadn't seen since the 60s in the civil rights movement. And while change may not be so clear just yet, this movement toward police reform may be the lasting legacy. We wanted to hear more, so Peter Haskell got on the phone with Lorenzo Boyd. I spent 13 years as a sheriff's deputy in Boston, and for the last 20 years I've been researching, writing about, and training police across the country. Today... Boyd, a Ph.D., is vice president for diversity and inclusion at the University of New Haven. It's been a year since George Floyd was killed. What's changed in the past year? The biggest thing that's changed is we're willing to have the conversations about police reform. We're even having those conversations inside of police departments where prior to George Floyd, the police always took a hard line against reform. They always started with anti-police. But now we're starting to see a lot of police officers, a lot of good officers, are acknowledging that there are bad officers doing bad things, much like the stuff that uh, Derek Chauvin has done. So now police officers are willing to have the conversation. So that's a step in the right direction. They are willing to have the conversation. Are they willing to make changes? Well, that depends on what the changes are. Uh, a lot of police departments are still bulking at giving up um, qualified immunity. They're willing to talk reform if it made sense. But part of the problem is that the community is angry and they're pushing harder than the police are willing to go. And unfortunately, we're in a situation where both sides are kind of against each other and it's one or the other and what we need is something kind of in the middle we need to make incremental changes and i think that's going to be the thing to get the police to uh, buy in you know it seems like a year ago there was a, a kind of consensus that some changes needed to be made but a year later it seems like a lot of that consensus has evaporated how do we get to that middle ground? Well, it's always a knee-jerk reaction when something immediately happens. It's on the front of everybody's uh, thought. But since then, we've gone through a year of a pandemic, and there's this whole vaccination. We went through a tumultuous election. We went through an inter insurrection. Now things are opening up again. And the more things that happen, the more it pushes it to the background. Because unfortunately, people tend to have uh, really short memories. And they pay attention to the next shiny thing that's in front of them. But there's still a lot of people that are pushing social justice and pushing police reform. And if those people can stay the course and get uh, elected officials to buy into what they're doing, I think uh, it, it's a pathway forward. Because over the country, there have been 300 pieces of legislation 
uh, that's been passed in the last year looking at police reform. So I think we're going in the right direction. You talk about social justice. There was a call from some people a year ago to defund the police. Now in New York City and a lot of other places, we see crime surging, and those two things seem to be in conflict. How do we figure this out? Well, let's let's unpack that a little bit, because the defund movement and the rise in violent crimes have nothing to do with each other. The rise in violent crime is, is part of a larger narrative that's happening with society. But again, the problem is we face symptoms and we avoid the problem because crime is not the problem. Crime is symptomatic of larger problems. So if we deal with the larger societal issues, homelessness, housing insecurity, uh, food insecurity, lack of education, addiction, if we deal with some of these issues, the crime rates themselves will go down. Now, when we talk about defunding the police, there are a few people that are talking about totally taking money away. But most people aren't talking about defund, they're talking about resource reallocation, which is the same song and dance that every mayor and every police chief has this time of year as they're putting their budgets together. And if you can take some of the money that people use for overtime and reallocate it into the reason that they need overtime, then I think that's going to be something that people are going to be able to understand. Because if you look at a police budget, between 80 and 90% of a police budget is personnel, salary and benefits. And of that 80 to 90%, according to the International Association of Chiefs of Police, of that 80 to 90%, about 20% of that is overtime. So taking that overtime or a portion of that overtime money and reallocate it into preventative programs is the direction that I think we need to go. So we don't lose police officers. Nobody gets laid off. Nobody loses money. It's just we have a standard now that the police can deal with policing issues and they don't have to deal with all of the social issues in society. But is that a controversial issue to take money from a police budget and put it toward homelessness and mental illness and the things you talk about? Well, I don't think it's controversial at all because when you look at police budgets, the budget for police tends to be the largest budget in any city. In some places, it's 30 or 40% of the entire budget. And again, there's a lot of studies that say that putting police in random routine patrol does nothing to affect crime rates. So if we reallocate the way we do policing, if we get police officers out of their cars into the community, and right now we know upwards of 90% of policing is reactive, if we go into proactive strategies, we'll see that we may not need as many people. And if you think about it, a lot of the calls that we send the police on, a lot of the mental health calls, a lot of the uh, lost people, uh, motor vehicle accidents, you don't need somebody with a badge and a gun to do those. So if we let the police do stuff that's actually crime-related or safety-related, then it frees up a whole lot of space. Where are the places that are doing things right, and what exactly are they doing? Well, there's a lot of places around the country that have uh, small uh, pieces of things uh, going right. For instance, uh, former Commissioner Willie Gross in Boston put together a community outreach team, and he reallocated money to have police officers being proactive and part of the community. And he reallocated some of the police officers from various districts to go into the high crime area 
not just to arrest people, but to see the problems that are happening and try to stop the problems before they become crimes. In Indianapolis, for instance, they have social workers now that are on call with the police or sometimes riding with the police because not everything is arrestable. Sometimes people just need uh, problems to be solved. So there's a lot of that going on around the country, a lot of uh, small pieces all over the country. But again, everybody always defaults back to crime and punishment. And the way you view the problem dictates the way you view the solution. So if we view the solution as a societal issue and we can see it as a societal problem, we can solve the problem as opposed to waiting to a crime has been committed and then arresting the offender. That doesn't help anyone. New York City has been uh, implementing neighborhood policing in recent years. Is that a good strategy? Well, it depends on what what you call it and what it is, because a lot of people say that it's neighborhood policing, but then you're not training the officers and you're not giving them any new tools. And you have a regular patrol officer that's used to making arrests, and now you put them in communities where they can make arrests. That's actually not helping. If you retrain the police, if you train them in cultural competence, if you train them in community awareness, if you train them in de-escalation, if you train them in communications, and let them know that the first thing that they default to should not be arrest, that they should be problem solvers, if that's happening, and I don't know what's happening in New York, but if that's happening, I think that's uh, going in the right direction. So it sounds like the old cliche, if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Absolutely. That's 100% true. And again, we've been training the police the, the same way since we ushered in the professionalism era 110 years ago. And we're not acknowledging that traditional policing as it is, is not very effective. There are really progressive chiefs around the country that are deciding to do things differently. For instance, I'm always amazed when the police are stopping and ticketing people for equipment violations because that disproportionately affects poor people, the folks that don't have the money to fix the equipment, the light that's out, but they still have to go to work every day. So now you add a 50 or $100 ticket on top of them trying to get this fixed. So it puts people uh, further away. So the way we do policing needs to actually change. One area of hope for many is this effort in Congress to produce a national police reform bill. This bipartisan effort would establish national standards for policing, but the bill appears stuck on the issue of whether the measure should make it easier to sue police for alleged brutality. But will standards and new laws actually make a difference? We absolutely need to do some um, legislative change because to borrow the term from Johnny Cochran in his final summation at the OJ trial, who polices the police? We've allowed the police to police themselves, and we find that because of really strong unions, that that doesn't work. We need legislative help to fix this problem. That's part of it. The other part of it is you have to change the culture of the way that people are doing things. And there are three ways to assess policing. Their policies, the things that they're supposed to do, the procedure, the way that they're supposed to do it, and the practice, which is the culture. And you have to change policing culture, and that's the hardest thing. You can't legislate culture. If you can't legislate it, and on the inside there's not a great desire to change it, then what? Well, we need to look at the people at the top. 
the commanders have to change what's going on. We have to hold police officers accountable. And I think it's really ironic that we have to have a law to tell police that they have a duty to intervene. To me, that seems self-explanatory. But the fact that we have to legislate them, because there are definitely bad officers, and there's a whole lot of good officers that aren't intervening. So if we can get the bad officers to stop doing the stuff that they're doing, if we can get the good officers to intervene, then that's the beginning of culture change. And then the conviction of Derek Chauvin, that was the best possible outcome for good policing. Because now they can say, we can distance ourselves from these bad cops. And if we can hold bad cops accountable, then the good cops will be free to do their jobs. There's a push in Washington for federal police reform law. What is your take on that? We definitely need some federal oversight because there are tens of thousands of individual police departments and the police in Stanford, Connecticut do things very differently than in Newark and they do it differently than in Boise, for instance. And even if you look in New York, I would bet you that there are some districts in the Bronx that are very different than Staten Island, which are very different than Manhattan. So policing is done so very differently. We need to have some uh, uniform measures to measure the police, and we definitely need unified federal standards to say, you can't do this. You know, we don't have to have a law that says you can't kneel on somebody's neck for nine minutes. We don't need to have a law that says you can't choke somebody out until they stop breathing. You know, those truths we should hold self-evident. But if we have a federal mandate that says these things are not just prohibited, but these things are against the law, then we can kind of bring down some of the bad behavior. There there are defenders of the police who say these are, and maybe the Chauvin case is is, uh, not the best example, but in other cases, they say things happen quickly. The cops are reacting. You don't want to keep them from doing their jobs. You don't want to keep them from doing their jobs, but you also want to hold them accountable when they uh, cross over the line. And police officers, like everybody else, have to decide what they're doing, what they're trying to do. And a lot of people will say if they didn't, uh, if they were to comply, then this stuff wouldn't happen. But continuously, we see bad cops doing bad things. So the compliance is not the issue. The issue is the overzealous policing if we can get a handle on that. And again, we want the police to do their job. And every single thing isn't necessarily an arrest, particularly if you have somebody's vehicle, if you have their driver's license, if you have their keys and they flee, do you need to run after them? Do you need to shoot them? You have all of their possessions and their driver's license in their car. You're going to get the person again. And it's that uh, us versus them that happens in policing that's problematic. One of the sticking points on the federal bill is qualified immunity, which you mentioned earlier. If you could explain exactly what that is and, and, and what's the answer? How do we, how do we compromise here? Well, in, in layman's terms, qualified immunity isn't just a policing thing. It's for government officials. They say if government officials are doing things that they think are within the scope of their job, if they're making a good faith effort to do the things that they're doing and things go wrong, that they're protected by the government from uh, legal liability. 
or from civil liability. Well, the problem is who gets to determine whether or not that something was reasonably objective in what they were doing. And to have somebody in a traffic stop end in somebody's death, I would argue every single day that that's not reasonable. So to say, no matter what I do, if I tell you I feared for my life, or if I told you that this is what really happened, too often we take the police's word without um, fact-checking a lot of this stuff. So qualified immunity is something that protects the police overwhelmingly. I'm not saying let's get rid of qualified immunity. I'm definitely saying let's take a look at it. And when I talk to police uh, departments across the country, when I talk to command staffs or, or officers or unions, the first question I asked is, how many times in the last five years has somebody exercised qualified immunity? Typically the answer is none. Why are we fighting so hard for something that people rarely use? So if that's the case, we need to decide whether or not this is something that we need in its current state. So I'm not saying get rid of it altogether, but I'm saying maybe we need to modify it, or maybe we need to take a look to see if it's working the way it's supposed to work. During the course of your career, how do you think your race informed your views of how to police? You know what? It's funny because virtually every day uh, when I was in uniform and even every day now as a university administrator, at some point somebody points out my race or my race becomes an issue. So to say that police have a race problem to me is problematic because I think America has a race problem. And if we just pin it on the police, then we let America as a society off the hook. So the police do what's happening in in the country, and right now we are a divided country, and race is a big issue. But again, there are black officers and white officers and Latinx officers and AAPI officers that are out there trying to do the right thing side by side. But unfortunately, we do know that there's a disproportionately larger number of people of color that have negative outcomes with the police. We know that if a black person is murdered, their murder is less likely to be brought to justice. We know that when black people come in contact with the police, they're more likely to have a negative outcome and a conviction. So we cannot uh, avoid race when we talk about criminal justice. We need to revamp the system. And it's not just policing that's the problem, it's the whole criminal justice system that's biased. When you look ahead, do you feel that there's hope, or are you concerned that this is just another partisan issue that that's going to be hard to resolve? I am an optimist, and I really think that there's hope moving forward. I train police officers every week, and in a typical year, I do about 300 hours of police training. And that's roughly the equivalent of, of teaching a seven-week police academy. Once you spend time talking to the officers as individuals and not in a monolithic group, then you can get them to understand the lived experience of the people that they're policing. It's a process. We're not going to erase 400 years of oppression by a year or two of uh, legislation. Because remember, ever since black people were brought to this country, they've had a negative relationship with authorities vis-a-vis -vis the police. If you go back to slave patrols, the Jim Crow law, black codes, uh, civil rights struggle, you know, we can go on and on. There's always been a negative relationship between people of color and the police. But now, 
the line of demarcation is in fact the murder of George Floyd. Moving forward, everyone is starting to talk about police reform. And that gives me hope because now legislators, progressive police chiefs, some officers, community members, university professors, everybody's trying to figure out what the, what the solution is to the problem. And that gives me hope. Thanks to Lorenzo Boyd for his time on this issue for us this week. Holding bad people accountable seems like a no-brainer, but so too is giving police the tools and the support and the protection to allow them to do their jobs and keep us safe. 880 In-Depth is a production of WCBS News Radio 880. Peter Haskell and myself, Tim Scheld, are the executive producers. Subscribe to 880 In-Depth wherever you get your audio and you can hear us on demand on your time. Thank you for listening and be safe. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friend at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.